We're into the collected sayings of the wise. As introduced by Solomon back in chapter 22, beginning in verse 17, where he said, Incline your ears and hear the words of the wise, and apply your mind to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant to you if you keep them within you, that they may be ready on your lips. So that, he says, your trust may be in the Lord. I have taught you today, even you. And he says, have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and of knowledge to make you know the certainty of the words of truth or the truth of the words of truth? And so he introduces what we call the collected sayings of the wise. Not necessarily Proverbs of Solomon, but Proverbs he collected in his first edition of the book of Proverbs, and so that's where we are. Now, last week, we covered uh, the first five of these. There are 36 in all. We covered five, and we're going to begin with number six tonight in verse one of chapter 23. So if you missed the last five, you can pick those up from last week's teaching online. Beginning in verse one, the sixth saying of the wise. When you sit down to dine with a ruler... Consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you're a man of great appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for it is deceptive food. What he's saying here is before chowing down on the boss's barbecue, you'd be wise to check the price on the menu first. What are you being charged Because as you've, I'm sure, heard elsewhere, there's no such thing as a free lunch. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You're being called in by a ruler. You're being called in by a boss, by someone who is above you, who is over you, and they're offering you something. Someone with clout or with power or authority, they invite you to dinner. you got to ask the question, why? If you look over in the book of Daniel, in fact, flip over there. It's just to the right a little ways. The book of Daniel, chapter 1. We see a ruler, a king, using dining as a tool. Verse 3 of Daniel chapter 1, Then the king, that is Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths, in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter into the king's personal service. These were Jews brought in from captivity, families murdered, people dragged out of their homeland, brought into captivity in Babylon and and, and Nebuchadnezzar wisely says, grab some of the sharp young minds. Bring them in and let's put them in a crash training course. Among them were the sons of Judah, verse 6, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You know them better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these four were among these young people brought in by Nebuchadnezzar. And the underlying issue at Nebuchadnezzar's table was not a free meal. It was indoctrination. He had a plan. Take the best lads of the conquered nations and first change their names. That's where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come from. Those are not, those are not Jewish names. They're Babylonian names. 
They're Jewish names as we read. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are the Jewish names. So change their names, change their language, teach them Babylonian, change their learning pattern, and change their lifestyle or their diet. Feed them from the king's table, and ultimately if you do that, you'll change their loyalty. That's what he was after. Pretty sharp guy. Satan does the same thing. It's how Satan works. It's a ploy of his. He whines and he dines till he undermines trying to affect your loyalty and mine. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. You may recall this from Sunday. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything except Jesus. I have one master in my life, Jesus Christ. And the proverb begins, this saying tells us there is no such thing as a free lunch, but there is freedom in Jesus. There's no such thing as a free lunch, but there is a free dinner. He says in Revelation 3.15, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in to him. I will dine with him and he with me. And of course, David wrote in Psalm 23.5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. There is a free dinner. The dinner that Jesus provides. The one that He spreads out before us. That's the one worth feasting at. But any other free meal, ask the question, what's this really about? Verse 4, the seventh saying, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. In other words, wealth is fleeting. You can't nail it down. If your end game, and young people especially, if your end game is wealth, being rich, making it in this world, you will be sorely disappointed. Because it will not satisfy. Solomon will say later in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. He says, and this is so wise, listen, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. The more stuff you own, the more your stuff owns you. And so Solomon says, you know, don't go after it. Don't make that your life's ambition, your life's goal. The more wealth, the more worry, until the wealth flees away like an eagle flying to the heavens. Yet, Isaiah tells us, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. It's not wealth we pursue, it's Jesus Himself. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's a wealth that doesn't fly away. The eighth saying, verse 6, Do not eat the bread of a selfish man, or desire his delicacies. For he, as he thinks within himself, so he is. As he is in his heart, that's how he is. As he thinks, if he's thinking only about himself, then that's what he is, a selfish man. He says to you, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsel you have eaten and waste your compliments. What do you mean? Because a selfish man is not there to serve you. He wants you to serve him. He's looking after his own well-being. 
So again, check the menu. See what the price really is. If someone coming alongside you, if it's selfish, be careful. You know what's interesting? I was reading this and thinking God's heart and man's heart are similar in one way. As he thinks within himself, so he is. We have hearts that are sinful and dark and flawed, problematic. God's heart is pure and perfect. Within himself is unconditional love and undying grace and unending pardon, the very nature of God. As he thinks, so he is, just as we think, so we are. Verse 9, do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. That's the ninth saying. We talked about one similar to this before. Jesus said, don't give what's holy to dogs. Don't throw your pearls before swine. They'll trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Another way to put it is this. If you wrestle with a pig, you'll end up in the mud. And the pig will like it. The pig's very much at home in the mud. The point is, if we argue, we lose. What do you mean? Because if you get into an argument, that's all the arguer wants to do. If their heart is only just to be argumentative, don't argue. Because you'll lose both ways. If someone's just trying to be combative with the Scripture or against the Scripture, you lose. And I've said this before, remember, we are not here to win arguments. We are here to win souls. Souls. The tenth saying, verse 10, Do not move the ancient boundary. And we saw one like that last week. Or go into the fields of the fatherless. Last week we compared the ancient boundary to the Word of God. Remember that? So the Word of God is like the ancient boundary set and established. And God says, don't mess with that. Don't change it. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Don't alter it in any way. The Word of God stands. If it's new... It isn't true. And that's a good way to look at it. But if it's true, it isn't new. Because truth has been established from the beginning. Truth is truth. But in the context here, don't move the ancient boundary. He adds something. He says, or go into the fields of the fatherless. Verse 11, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their case against you. In this context, the wise saying is, don't do anything that will put more oppression on those already oppressed. The orphan, the widow. God has always had a heart for the underdog. He always looks out for the bedraggled of the world, those who are barely getting by, the oppressed, the downtrodden. Psalm 10, verse 17, O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. And he's the one that the Redeemer will plead his case against. And you do not want to be in court against God. He has a heart for the oppressed. The the Hebrew word there, by the way, Redeemer, verse 11, is a word some of you may be familiar with, you Bible students. It's Gaal, which is the kinsman Redeemer. Like Boaz was for Ruth. The kinsman redeemer, the one who redeems the outcast or the lost, or the one who's oppressed. And if I'm going to oppose the kinsman redeemer, if I'm going to oppose God, bilking the bedraggled out of their rightful inheritance before the Lord, He'll take me to court, and I will lose. Then He goes on. He says in verse 12, 
apply your heart to discipline and your ears to words of knowledge. Now that's not a proverb or a wise saying. That's just an insert there where Solomon says, do these things. Pay attention to these things. And then we get to the 11th wise saying, verse 13. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. And social services would freak out at such language. (laughs) That we even read that out loud. (laughs) Because social services' concern is with one thing, the physical well-being of the child. Now, the Lord is not calling for abuse. We talked about this last week, too. It's not about cruelty or meanness or harm to a child. It's not about leaving bruises or welts or hurting a child in that way. But the problem is that the world is so focused on the physical condition of the child or the person, so focused on life now, that we lose sight of the spiritual condition, which means life later. And and that's where discipline and punishment goes. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. Better a child have a spanking and be directed in the right path that his soul, that his spirit be saved forever. And we live in the culture that says, no, 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 it's cruelty, it's abuse to give a spanking. No, measured, thoughtful, carefully thought out, loving spanking is absolutely biblical. And it's for the purpose of course correction. And again, we spent a lot of time on this last week, so I won't again tonight. But parents, let me just add this. As you think about disciplining your children, spanking is one aspect of it, but do not forget that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. David was a college friend of mine back uh, back in the day, and his parents had a unique way of punishing him once spankings no longer worked, you know, when he got to be 18, 19 years old. No. When he got out beyond that spanking age where it really wasn't taking effect, he had to ver- memorize Scripture. Now, he must have gotten in trouble a lot because this college friend of mine knew a lot of Scripture. <laughs> but that was what they would do. Okay, your punishment is such and such, this is a grounding, and you need to memorize, and they give him passages of Scripture that he had to memorize. I thought, wow. Now, there's a thought. There's an idea. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Verse 15, going on. This is the twelfth saying of the wise, and I'm moving through these quickly, you might note. We have some things to get to. The twelfth saying, My son, if your heart is wise, my own heart also will be glad, and my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. This may be a 12th saying, or it could possibly be Solomon sneaking in another father-son encouragement here. It could be just him saying, look, I, I love watching my sons walk in wisdom. And what parent doesn't? You know, what parent hasn't felt joy to watch a child walk in wisdom, the wisdom that we've taught them? And I'm not sure of any parent who hasn't felt the pain of watching their kids walk, walk in the foolishness that they probably taught them as well. What do you do? I'm asked this question often, especially by those whose children are grown and out of the house. What do I do if my children are following in my foolish footsteps? Not bringing me joy because they're following the wisdom of Jesus, but they're following foolishness. They've made foolish decisions. 
I would tell you to do the same thing God did. What did God do? He gave them over. He gave His children over. Two ways. Give them over to their choices. Give them over to their sin. Remember, their sin will find them out. And perhaps once their sin finds them out, the fallout from their sin will bring them running home like the prodigal. You've got to give them over to their sin choices and let them work it out. Let them feel it. Don't keep rescuing. The worst thing a parent of a grown person can do when that grown person is making foolish, stupid mistakes in their life is continue to rescue. The longer you rescue, the longer they will stay in their sin. Don't rescue. Give them over to their sin. And give them over to the Lord. You've got to remember, and this is where the peace comes in, God always loves your children more than you do. So if you're worried about them, if you're fearful for their lives, if you're concerned about where they're at or what they're doing or the choices they're making, you give them over to God, you pray constantly for them, knowing God loves them more than you ever have. And you know that He wants them saved far more even than you do. Verse 17, the 13th saying, Do not let your heart envy sinners. But live in the fear of the Lord always. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. 1970 was a bad year. All around. I'm reading a book right now. I'm not sure that I would recommend. It's very interesting. It's called Fire and Rain. just came out. And it's a biography of, of several bands back in 1970 and what was going on in the country. It's kind of a cultural look and, and biographical sketch, and it's an interesting, interesting book. <clears throat> talks about certain albums that came out that year. Some great music arrived on the scene, if you're into popular music, in 1970. Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Waters was released that year. Uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young's album Deja Vu was released that year. James Taylor's breakout album, Sweet Baby James, was released that year, came into the charts at number 90, and ended up number 3 on the charts by the end of the year. So a huge move in music. Things were changing. The Beatles, Let It Be, their final album, came out in 1970. It was also the year the Beatles broke up, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young broke up. Simon and Garfunkel broke up. Apollo 13 broke up and almost didn't make it home. Anti-establishment violence rocked the entire nation from coast to coast as, as college campuses like Kent State. Perhaps you heard about the May 4th, called the, the May 4th uh, Massacre, I believe it was called, where students were actually gunned down by National Guard who were called in to do their job to try and keep the peace. And things were out of control in this nation. In fact, it was one of the first times probably in our nation's history where left and right were pulling so dramatically against each other and, and the young people were kind of in that cultural divide. And the excess of drugs in rock and roll music was, was unbelievable. That same year, Jimi Hendrix overdosed and died. That same year, Janis Joplin, just weeks later, overdosed and died. It was an ugly year. That same year of disillusionment. All these things happening in 1970. And you know, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, wow, it's almost as if 1970 is sin's answer to the 60s. Free love. Free drugs. 
Free whatever, you can live however you want, you don't have to live by the rules of the establishment, and then 1970 hit, and it all fell apart. And everything went south. You know why James Taylor's album, Sweet Baby James, went from 90 to, to third place on the Billboard chart that year? Because it was peaceful. Because it was calming. And because people were sick and tired of the tension and music and everything else, it had just gotten out of control. Here's the thing. If you're living for the now, you have no future or hope. But if you're living for then, you have a future and a hope. And that is the way to live. If I'm living for now, it will always mess me up. History teaches us, now is never enough. And the psalmist, or the, the, the Proverbs writers, they say, listen here, verse, what verse was it we were in? 17, do not let your heart envy sinners. And I thought, well, of course my heart doesn't envy sinners, doesn't it? If you look around sometimes in the world and see someone who has something or has accomplished something or has done something, you go, that'd be cool to be them. I'm a huge James Taylor fan. And there were days in my life where I was like, man, I wish I could be James Taylor. Not now. Not after reading where his life went. Came out in 1970. Until 1985, he was strung out on heroin. Fifteen years. And in 85, he got clean and sober. But all of that mess of his life, why would I envy that? Why would I want to have that? Why would I envy anybody who's just living for now? There's no hope there. But, but to live for then. Oh, Peter says in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. A living hope. That's what Jesus promises us. That's why we're here, isn't it? 14th saying, verse 19. Listen, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. He says, do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. Now we talked about this at length on Sunday. What I didn't point out in this particular saying is that it's not a warning against wine or gluttony. That comes a few verses down. This warning is a warning against keeping company with heavy drinkers and gluttons, those who are choosing to live for now. This wise saying is saying, be careful who you're hanging with, who you're spending time with. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You know, if there is no tomorrow, if it's only now, party up. Drink up. Eat up. If this is it, man, I'll tell you what, if if now was all that mattered, my entire pantry would be full of (laughs) Pop-Tarts. The whole thing. As it is, I haven't had one in about eight weeks. It's killing me. (laughs) Break from the addiction, Rick. The company there. He he says, following that, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And by the way, there are no exceptions. 
Oh, I can, I can handle it. No. Actually, there's one exception. Jesus Christ. He alone could handle it. The rest of us cannot. Bad company corrupts good morals, becomes sober-minded as you ought, Paul says, and stop sinning. Well, that's awfully abrupt. We need to hear that sometimes, don't we? Man, I get so tired. I love the grace of God. I love His mercy, but I get so tired of hearing message after message in churches saying it's all just about fluff. Sometimes we need someone to say to us, stop sinning. Stop it. Now pause for a moment. What is it in your life that's the big sin problem? What's the one? What's the one thing that if you nailed it down, oh, that's the one I don't want anybody to know. It's okay, we're not going to flash it on the screen. What is the one big sin issue for you? You know what Jesus would say to it? Stop! After that incredibly gracious moment where he, he dealt with the woman caught in the act of adultery, remember what he said? Hey, go your way. Neither do I condemn you. I don't condemn you. You're forgiven. Go your way and sin no more. Stop it. Just stop. And that's the message of the Gospel, the message of hope. We have a future and a hope, not eyes on now, but eyes on then. And if our eyes are fixed on Jesus, you know what John says? We've talked about this. John says, those who have this hope in themselves purify themselves just as He is pure. Well, Rick, so so what's the number one way that I can stop sinning? Look for Jesus' return. Number one. The best way to stop sin in your life is wake up in the morning and go, today could be the day. Because if you believe today is the day, and by the way, I do, if you believe today is the day, why would you want to be caught in the very sin that He's asked you to stop sinning? It's not about legalism. It's about righteousness. And He wants us to be righteous people. He wants to sanctify us. Verse 22, the 15th saying of the wise. Verse 22, listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. That's an interesting one to me. What does it mean? You'll despise your mother when she's old. It's an honest assessment of those who rebel against parental wisdom. There's just that tendency. When a child rebels against parental wisdom and grows up and stays in that place of rebellion, eventually they get bitter toward their parents. The very parents who are trying to teach them godly wisdom, the child is bitter toward. Especially if you say, hey, could you just come with me to church? There's a bitterness there. You'll despise your mother when she's old. Jesus paid the highest price so that we might know the truth. I love this phrase, buy truth. Man, if you're going to invest in anything, invest in truth. Invest in wisdom. Buy it. Don't sell out to deception. Buy the truth, the wisdom of God. And by the way, if your father and mother know Jesus, listen to them. Verse 24, the 16th saying of the wise, The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. And he who sires a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and your mother be glad. And let her rejoice who gave birth to you. That's just a good word. Let your parents be glad they brought you into this world as opposed to saying, I took you, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. Right, exactly. Okay. 
Number 17, the 17th saying, verse 26, Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. Parents, that's a, that's a great word there. To say to your kids, as they develop faith, before the point comes in their lives where they're going to own their faith, have them run on yours. Give me your heart, son, and watch. Watch dad run on his faith. Watch mom run on her faith. Give me your heart. Give me your eyes. Watch us. Don't just listen to the words we say. Watch the things we do. And kids who run on their parents' faith, when it comes time to own their own faith, already know how to run. It's wise teaching. It's wise training. Give me your heart. Give me your eyes. Verse 27, For a harlot is a deep pit, and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. Solomon covers both, if this is Solomon or, or the wise men. They cover both, the harlot, the unmarried woman, and the adulterous woman, the married woman. And in this case, he says, look, you're looking into a deep pit there. A narrow well. This one is interesting. A deep pit is just hard to climb out of. A narrow well is a confining trap. The word pit there in, in the Hebrew is shuak. And shuak is interesting. It means pit, but it's also the same Hebrew word they use for depression. Depression. An affair. An adulterous relationship. A sexual relationship outside of the marriage bed is a deep pit and depression is the result of it. Because there's no commitment there. The word for well... A narrow well is be'er in Hebrew. And that one's interesting too. It's a water shaft sunk into the ground, which typically would have very slimy, mossy walls. So there's no getting out. Once you're in, there's no getting up and out of there. You're stuck. You might try to climb out, but you're slipping and sliding. It's unscalable. And this is the description. Whether or not Solomon wrote this one, he understood this one. He knew. He knew from his own experience. He knew from his own family life. What a mess of a family. You know, I wonder about this one. Because it begins, Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. And I wonder, why was it that David's house, Solomon's dad, David, that his house was such a mess? David, a man after God's own heart. Why? Because there were things that David probably felt he couldn't teach his sons. He couldn't teach them. Not to be adulterous. He'd done it. And the implication is that he didn't teach them. That his house was a mess. And along comes Solomon, you know, raised in this house, watches all that's going on, and he picks up on it, and he cautions his own sons about it, and then he himself follows the same direction. And maybe you're the parent who's saying, okay, but I'm in that place. (laughs) I've done those things. How can I tell my children not to do what I've done? You tell them. (laughs) Don't do what I've done. I've gone down that road. And there was only one way out of that slippery well, and it was by the grace of Jesus who pulled me out. But you do not want to go there. You deal honestly with your kids. Now, not before they're ready to hear it. But if they're dealing with struggles, with sin struggles... Don't act like the perfect parent. Be honest with your kids. They need to hear it. The 
17th and 18th sayings are interesting when we get down here. As we go on into verse 29, they're back-to-back warnings about sexual immorality and then warnings about drinking. Why is that? (laughs) I believe it's because the two are so well-connected. Verse 29, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I didn't become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. And it's the words of the alcoholic. It's the words of the one drinking and continuing to drink. And I'm not going to talk about it anymore tonight because we spent all of Sunday morning on this. But I encourage you, if you weren't here Sunday and you didn't get a chance to study through this passage, go listen to it. I'm asking you to listen. It's one of the most important teachings I think that we've done in a long time. Why is that? Listen, I, I was praying about this all through last week about how to teach it on Sunday morning and what needed to be shared and what I needed to bring. And there are three groups that came to mind as I prayed it through. There were those whose lives had been taken by alcohol. And I felt, yeah, well, that's, that's going to be important but difficult to hear. There are those who don't drink at all. And I heard you all because Sunday morning they were the hearty amens every now and then, you know. Because <laughs> we love to amen stuff that we're good with, you know. <laughs> I, I'm, I got that one down, amen. <laughs> you know, don't shoot your brother's neighbor, amen. Haven't done it. <laughs> and you know what? It came down to the teaching about drinking it wasn't for either group. Oh, I guess it could be applied to either. But the group that I was most concerned with is the Christians who are comfortable with it. You know? Or who have been comfortable with it. Who come up face to face with scriptural truth and say, okay, am I going to stop and deal with this and face the truth? Or am I going to scurry around it and say it's no big deal? And I encourage you to stop. And You may not agree with my conclusions, but please... Hear it out. Please take the time to study this. Let's go on. Proverbs 24, verse 1. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. For their minds devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. We're on to the 19th saying. And again, he's saying, do not envy people who live for now. That's the heart of wickedness. It's filling up now. It's it's getting everything you can out of life right now. Matthew 24, 37. Jesus said, you know, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. (laughs) As it begins to rain. That's funny. Jesus said, as in those days... You know, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, just having a good old time. What were they doing? Living for now. And along comes this funky little prophet who's building a boat. It's going to rain! What? What's, what's rain? 
It's rain. What are you talking about? It's not going to rain. And if it does, so we get a little, you know, drizzle. No biggie. And so they continued eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and, and the whole picture of just life as, you know what, life goes on, nothing ever changes. It's been this way since the beginning. It will always be this way. And Jesus said they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Living for now makes life in the now hopeless. Living for then brings hope to the now, for then is on the way. Get it? (laughs) Verse 3, the 20th wise saying, By wisdom a house is built. By understanding it is established. And by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Now, I like this. Knowledge. By knowledge a house is filled with good things. But the house is not built by knowledge. The house is built by wisdom. Knowledge will fill it up later, but you don't build the house with knowledge. What are you talking about? Knowledge, verse 4, is the accumulation of truth. The Hebrew word, therefore, knowledge, means the accumulation of truth, gathering truth up. We all accumulate things in our homes. And pictured here is the precious and pleasant riches in a home, things that you might have up on the shelves, the knickknacks, the furniture, the things that go into the house. But knowledge doesn't build a house. Wisdom is the application of the truth. That builds the house. It's the difference between knowledge is hearing... And wisdom is doing. Knowledge is hearing, wisdom is doing, and it's wisdom that builds a house. I was thinking, we have accumulated quite a cache of Christmas decor. We have boxes and boxes, and it's really sickening. And we're, we're finally to the point now where we're saying, okay, one box a year is going in the trash. We've, we've just got to downsize a bit because it's ridiculous. All the stuff all we've acquired over the years, beginning back when Cheryl and I first got married, 1986 up until now, so 25 years worth of Christmas junk. <laughs> but you can't build a house with them. We have all these things that we have accumulated, built up in our house, but you can't build a house with them. I mean, that'd be silly. Time to build the house. Get the Christmas decorations, honey. We'll, we'll build. You don't do that. It's ridiculous. And yet people try to do it. What are you talking about? We try to build our homes with knowledge instead of wisdom. Okay, still, what, what are you talking about? James 1.21, prove yourselves to be doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Did you know you can come and sit in Bible study and be completely deluded your entire life? If all you're doing is showing up to increase knowledge, to accumulate knowledge like Christmas decorations, it may look pretty in your house, but it will not give you a foundation. It will not establish you in the Lord if you're just taking in knowledge. Wisdom is taking what you've learned and applying it, using it. Your real Bible training is not in here. It's out there. And if you listen in here and you take everything that said, oh yeah, I just I love to hear the word, I love the knowledge, you know, but you box it up and put it in the garage, it does you no good, and your house will not be strong. And Jesus gave an ex- excellent example of this after going through the entire Sermon on the Mount, 
Words of fantastic wisdom. He comes down to the end of it. And in Matthew 7.24 it says, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Now listen. He also says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them. See, both the wise man and the foolish man came to Bible study. Both were there every Wednesday night. The difference between wisdom and foolishness is the application of what you hear. It's letting the Word change you. The whole drinking discussion that we had on Sunday, it's letting the Word change your life. Even if you don't want it to. (laughs) Even if you're dealing with something that you say, but I, I like my lifestyle. I can handle my lifestyle. I like where I'm at. Then you're a fool. If you're not allowing the Word to change and alter your direction. A foolish person hears these words and does not act on them. And the foolish man built his house on the sand. You know the story. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. I love how it ends, though. It says, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. What does that mean? It means, Jesus says, everyone who hears my words, you're paying attention to what I say, and you're doing them, you're a wise man. The scribes and the, and the Pharisees, all they could do is, is point to the rabbis and the other teachers and occasionally to Scripture. But they couldn't say, listen to me, listen to my words. Only Jesus came along and said that. And so we build the house with wisdom. Wisdom is the doing of the thing. And then we fill the house with knowledge. Hey, keep accumulating Bible knowledge. It's wonderful. Fantastic. We should be growing in our understanding of Scripture. But if we're not applying our understanding of Scripture, all we have is a bunch of stuff. And it's not going to stand when the storms come. Jesus said in John 13, 17 to His disciples, and to you and me by extension, if you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Do them. The 21st saying, verse 5 of chapter 24. A wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge increases power. For by wise guidance you will wage war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. There is victory. Gang, don't ever forget we are at war. We are in a battle, and it's a fierce battle. Spencer was just telling me, I don't know if you heard this in the news, but I'm just going to quote what you shared. Michelle Bachman's husband, Michelle Bachman who's running for president, and I'm not pushing her candidacy or anybody, I'm not ready to do that yet. But, <laughs> but her husband is a counselor. And her husband has just been exposed on ABC News for counseling homosexuals that if they pray to Jesus, He can change their life. (gasps) ABC News sent in someone with a hidden camera to expose Michelle Bachman's husband for trying to say that if you ask Jesus to help you, you might be able to leave a homosexual lifestyle. And they're, they're throwing this out like, isn't that terrible? That's horrible! You know... 
You mean, you mean that someone would actually stand up and say, Jesus can change your life? <laughs> Duh! But that's where we are in this world. We are at war. But we're not at war with the mainstream media. We're not at war with people. We are in a spiritual battle. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 Paul writes, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are at war. But what the Proverbs tell us, the wise saying tells us is, yes, we're at war, but we have many counselors. You see, the person who fights the war with many counselors, that's wise. That's why. That's how you win the war. Many counselors, what are you talking about? Listen to verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 6. Therefore take up the full armor of God so you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, he says, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Again, we have many counselors. We have truth on our side. I mean, hallelujah, we've got the truth. We have righteousness on our side. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. We have faith. We have the Holy Spirit. We have God's Word, which, by the way, comes along with 40 different counselors. 40 advisors writing these 66 books to counsel us in this war that we are waging and that we are caught up in. And we have the saints of God around us. Wise counsel. Praying together. Fighting the battle together. Verse 7. This is the 22nd wise saying, if you're keeping track. Wisdom is too exalted for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. And the gate was that main entry to the cities back in Solomon's day. In fact, if you've been to Israel, you see kind of what the city gate looked like and the judge would sit there in the gate or the ruler of that city and the wise people would, would be there and that's where they would hold court and that's where they would have community discussions and draw people together there in the gate. The town idiot did not have a place in the gate. That's what he's saying here. <laughs> Verse 8. One who plans to do evil will men will call a schemer. The devising of folly is sin and the scoffer is an abomination to men. Wow. Wow, the devising of folly is sin. It's not the acting on it, it's the thinking about it. It's the fact that I'm planning ahead. You've already sinned. If you're planning to do it, you've done it, as far as Scripture is concerned. Why? Because sin is a heart-level issue. Sin issues from the motives of the heart. Remember the pre-flood state of things. You know, before the floodwaters came, Genesis 6.5 tells us the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Not just the actions of his body, but the thoughts of the heart. That alone was enough. 
That alone was bad enough. Isaiah 55 verse 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Bible's very clear on this. It's not just forsake the behavior. It's not just change the behavior. It's change the heart. Why is it that so many homosexuals find it difficult to change? It's because it's a heart issue. It's not a behavioral issue. It's a heart issue. And only Jesus can change the heart. So going back to Michelle Bachman's husband, good for him. He's offering the one hope someone has to change at the level of the heart. Again, Isaiah, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly provide. Verse 10, the 24th, saying, If you are slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. Hmm? If you're lazy in hard times, you're just going to have a little bit of strength. Look at it this way. If you've had a hard day and you end it with laziness, what little strength you had left will be wiped out. And that's absolutely true. If I've had a long, difficult day and I wander in the house, say, say a Wednesday where I've been going nonstop all day long, like today, and I arrive in the house... 10 o'clock, and I crash out on the couch, guess what? I'm done. I might as well just go to bed. Because that's it. What little strength I had left is history. But, if at the end of that long day, you take what strength you have, and you use it, more strength comes. In hard times, days of distress, use what little strength you have. Whether it's to open your Bible and pray, read some scripture, whether it's to to worship a bit, to serve somebody in need, or even just as you all have tonight, just to make it out the door and get to Bible study. I know for some of you it was all you could do to be here. You had the long day, and even as you're in the car driving, you're doing have you ever done that thing, you know, where you're falling asleep behind the wheel and it's torture. It is pure torture. You might be driving 10 minutes, but those 10 minutes are like two hours of pure torture if you're tired. But you got here. You made it. And God has given more strength than you ever would have had if you had just stayed home, put your feet up, and watched reruns of Oprah. I know that's Spencer's favorite thing to do. Just to be in the fellowship of other believers, gang, your little strength, what little strength you have left in the hard day or in the hard time, that little strength will grow. Jesus says in Revelation 3.8, I know your deeds. Behold, I put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. You take that little power and you use that little power. You invest in Jesus what you have left. If you hold on in the hard times... If you don't back down, you don't let up, you don't get lazy with your faith. No, you press in and you press on because as God told Jeremiah, the day is coming that's going to be harder than today. And how you handle today will prepare you one way or another for the harder day that is coming down the line. God said in Jeremiah 12.5, If you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, 
How can you compete with horses? If you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? If when it's kind of hard now, what will it be like for you when it's devastatingly hard? I'll give you an example. There, there are some days when I'm barely hanging on between the chiropractor and the heating pad. Lately, my lower back's been giving me trouble. Bad trouble. And I finally put two and two together and realized what it was. Actually, I put three and five together and realized it was David and Naomi. (laughs) Once again, I'm picking up little ones who are bulky little ones, you know? And I'm carrying them around. And, and, you know, when you carry a three-year-old like David, they don't hold on to you. They don't cling to you. Actually, Naomi, who weighs more, is easier to carry around than David because she wraps her legs and arms around you. You you could just stand there like this, and she's hanging on good. (laughs) David is pointing at things and hanging out. You know, and so you got this pressure pulling against (laughs) the back. The back, son. <sighs> but the option not to pick them up, that's an option. Sorry, no. They come running up for a hug, no. Pain, no. Can't do it. <laughs> you know, I found this great, this great machine at the gym. It's the one I was on when we were talking the other day, Glenn. I love this machine. Put your arms over this thing, you know, and you start pulling it forward. I was doing this a couple of weeks ago, and one of the guys who worked at the gym said, hey, you want to get out of the painter's scaffolding? And I was like, oh, sorry, all right. No, I was in this machine. This is a great machine. You, you, you put your arms up against the pads, and you pull forward, and this thing works. The latissimus dorsi. And it works the, the, the rhomboids and the trapezius, and it works the terrace major and minor. The entire back is getting worked by this machine. I love it because it's strengthening my back so I can pick up my kids. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying, listen, when your burdens are heavy, rather than praying, God, take away my burden, God, lighten my load, pray, strengthen my back. Give me more strength in my back so that I can carry more. I don't want to tell my children I can't pick them up. I don't want to live a life where I'm saying, no, I can't do that, I can't do this, I can't live this way. No, I want to be stronger for the work God has for me. So if you're coming to it, you're having a hard day, you're tired, you're exhausted, Lord, I don't want you to lighten my load, I want you to strengthen my back. Honestly, I want to be able to carry more for Jesus. Saying number 25, verse 11. Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. Six million Jews died, you know, in the Nazi death camps. Perhaps you didn't know that we knew all about it. Oh, not after the fact. While it was going on. In Yad Vashem, In Israel, the Holocaust Museum, you can see letters written from prominent Jews around the world to Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the U.S. government pleading with them to send bombers to these death camps to bomb out the crematoriums and the ovens and the buildings for mass murder. And the United States government turned a blind eye. No, we can't spare a bomber. Just a couple. Just send a couple. You can read these letters. We can't spare a single one. We turned a blind eye. We did exactly the opposite 
of the call here, deliver those who are being taken away to death. We did not deliver. Of course, since Roe v. Wade in 1973, not 6 million, but according to some estimates, 53 million babies have been aborted in America. Listen, the Bible calls on us to rescue, to deliver from death. The Bible calls on us to save those who are headed to the slaughter. To do whatever we can, whether it's in your voting, whether it's in the statements you make and the way you stand up, and I'm not talking about the craziness out there. Responding to abortion with violence is is stupidity. But I'm talking about taking an honest biblical stand against the slaughter of the innocent. The Bible calls us to this. And, by the way, we will not be able to feign ignorance. Look at verse 12. If you say, see, we did not know this, he does, not consi- does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? He knows if you knew. He knows if you knew someone was headed for death and did nothing. God knows. And will he not render to man according to his work? Well, wait, that sounds familiar. Gang, there's, there's a deeper issue here for us than, than physical death physical slaughter. The drumbeat of wickedness, as loud as it may be, is nothing compared to the drumbeat of time. Every second that ticks by that gets us one second closer to the end. To the coming of Jesus. And with every second that ticks by, ticks by opportunities we have to save somebody from an eternal death. To save somebody who right now is headed to the slaughter. What are we going to do about that? Well, we didn't know. We can't feign that. We cannot claim before the Lord. We had no idea that they were going to be eternally lost. No, you know. We know. Somehow we have got to move away from our own fear of of offending someone and into the place of crying out to save before it's too late. Because will he not render to a man according to his work? My friends, this is the gospel call for every believer. It's not limited to pastors and teachers and those who are evangelically motivated. It is everybody. We are all called to be speakers of the gospel. It's what two days with Timothy was all about. For those of you who are here for that, it's what we talked about the whole time. It's about getting the gospel out. That's our job. Our job as believers in Jesus Christ. It's not how are we going to get from one day to the next. It's not how am I going to pay my bills. It's not make sure we get the groceries. It's not this everyday life that we live. It is getting the gospel out. That is our call. And to not do it, we can't get away with saying, Lord, we just didn't know. Because we do. And what's interesting is Jesus quotes this. Will He not render to a man according to His work? Jesus says, Behold, Revelation 22.12, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what He has done. What's He talking about? He's talking about the souls you've saved. There are rewards in heaven coming from Jesus based on the work you do in this life. The souls you save, the mouths you feed, the people you care for, the lives that you turn to Jesus. And He says, I'm coming. And my reward is with me. Chapter 24, verse 13. 
My son, eat honey, for it is good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Now that's one of those verses, one of those passages that I say, Amen, because I'm big on honey. And by the way, anyone who, if you have bees, make honey, let me know. Because i gotta, I got to do something for the lack of Pop-Tarts. Okay, i got to do something. <laughs> and this is biblical. Eat honey. It's good. Honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Verse 14, know that wisdom is thus for your soul. What do you mean? Like honey. Wisdom is like honey for your soul. If you find it, then there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. There it is again, a future and a hope. If you gain wisdom, if we live by wisdom, wisdom's like honey. It's sweet, it brings immediate and lasting energy, and wisdom is found, honey, another picture for the Word of God. You know, by the way, the Jewish people, traditionally, how they teach their little ones the alphabet, one of the traditional ways Jewish people will teach their little kids the alphabet, the alphabet, is they will put honey in the shape of the alphabet letters. They'll put the honey on apple slices. And if the child can recognize that letter, they can eat it. Because the Jewish people take this literally to create an appetite for their children, for the Hebrew language. Eat it up! Eat the words! Eat the learning! It becomes a, a sweetness. They want to pass that along. What do you have an appetite for? What is the thing that you hunger for? Because ultimately what we eat is what we crave. What we eat is what we get used to, and that becomes what we crave. So feed on the Word. Feed on the Word. People say, how can I get more into Bible study? Listen, if you want to develop a hunger for God's Word, an appetite for God's Word, you've got to eat it. It comes first from you eat it first, and then it starts to work in you. It's been described as milk, meat, and honey. It starts like milk. You just eat it because you need to for survival like a baby. But it starts to get better. And you want more. And the more you dig in, it becomes like meat. And now you're chewing on the, the, the meaty protein, the goodness of the word. And the longer you chew on it, and the longer you take in that meat of the word, the more sweet it becomes until it's like eating honey. And you crave what you feed on. If you want an appetite for the word, study the word. Be in the word. Yeah, but I I try and I spend five minutes and I get lost. Okay, but keep spending five minutes. Because that will turn into 10, which will turn into 15, and the milk will become meat, will become honey, and I guarantee you, and my life is an example of it, I love God's Word. I love to study, but I didn't always. There's a time not long ago where I could teach it, but I didn't love it. Now, I, I'll tell you what, if me and Glenn are the only two people here, I'm teaching. If nobody showed up, I would sit down, open my Bible, turn on the tape, and start going. <laughs> because I love the Word. If you want to love it, you got to eat it. Les' favorite verse is the one he claims that is his. It's not. It's all of ours, but he can think what he wants. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Your words were found, and I did eat them, and they became for me the joy and the delight of my heart. God's Word, like honey. Now, the next three sayings are warnings, each one beginning with, Do not. 
Saying number 27, verse 15. Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not destroy his resting place. For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. Do not! By the way, that verse, boy, there's a whole sermon right there. Verse 16, a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. The wicked stumble in time of calamity. And the difference right there is is very clear between the saved and the lost. The difference is the saved fall down, but they rise again. The saved fall down too, but they get back up by grace. And notice they get up. Seven times. They fall seven times and they rise again. Seven, that number of completion. Man, you're going to fall down. Woman, you're going to sin. But seven times. And you become complete in Christ and you will rise. You will rise. The lost will stumble in time of calamity and will not get back up. And there may even there be a hint of the tribulation. A hint of what's coming that the lost just never get back up again. Ha, good. Good, you know? Good, good. The evil are going down. Right on. Ha, <laughs> Give it to them, God. Take them down. Verse 17, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Or the Lord will see it and be displeased and... Turn his anger away from him. <laughs> First Corinthians 13.5 tells us love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. If you rejoice when your enemy falls, the Lord says, I will turn my anger away from him. All right, I'm going to lift my anger. What does that mean? It means God is merciful. This is amazing. Even when someone wicked is doing something and they fall, if if I'm over here gloating and laughing about it and and rejoicing about it, the mercy of God's heart says, you know what, that's not cool. That's enough. And He lifts His anger. Because God is always merciful. God's anger is never about making sure people get their just desserts. God's anger works to turn men's hearts. Even God's wrath. Even God's wrath. Check it out. In the tribulation, do you realize if you read through Revelation 6-19, through one thing that God is doing behind the scenes through the entire tribulation while He's pouring out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, at the same time, He is always calling, come back to Me. Turn around to Me. Repent. Be saved. He's, he's got angels flying in the heavens. He's got two witnesses in Jerusalem. He's got 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams running all over the earth shouting the Gospel while He's pouring out His wrath. When I learned that in my life, it blew my mind. Because it wasn't God saying, here comes a certain point, I'm going to rapture the church and the rest of you are toast. No. I'm going to pull the church out, my ambassadors. We're going to talk about that Sunday. I'm going to pull the church out. And I'm going to pour out my wrath on this world because judgment is deserved. However, even while I'm pouring out my wrath, I'm going to be saying, please repent. Please be saved. There is opportunity throughout the seven-year tribulation for those under the wrath of God still to be saved. It's absolutely marvelous. God's grace is bigger than we ever imagined. 
Verse 19. The third do not. Verse 19 says, Do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked, for there will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will will be put out. We don't fret. We don't envy the wicked. We don't rejoice when sinners fall. For our part, we love and we leave the judgment to God. All right, final saying, verse uh, number 30, verse 21. My son, fear the Lord and the King. Do not associate with those who are given to change. Given to change indicates rebellion. Those who want to change the leadership. Don't associate with those who are given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin that comes from both of them. Both of them? From the Lord and from the King. What he's saying here is don't hang with those who stir up rebellion seeking a change in leadership. Paul addresses this in Romans 13. Peter also addresses it, probably drawing from this proverb, 1 Peter 2.17. He says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And when Peter said honor the king, and when Paul said obey the governing authorities, Nero was in power. Now with that, the 30 sayings of the wise conclude. But don't pack it up just yet. There are six additional sayings. This guy is just like me. There are six more sayings here. Verse 23. He says, these also are sayings of the wise. Number one, to show partiality and judgment is not good. He who says to the wicked, you're righteous. People will curse him. Nations will abhor him. But to those who rebuke the wicked will be delight. And a good blessing will come upon them. Note this. We're not to rejoice when the wicked fall. However, we are expected to rebuke wickedness. That's an important distinction. Because if we say, don't rejoice when the wicked fall, some people say, okay, so I just need to back off. I need to not, I need to not counsel the homosexual that he can turn from. I just need to back off. Let, live and let live. That's what that means, right? Wrong. We don't rejoice when the wicked fall, but we do rebuke wickedness. We are called to stand up to it, to call it what it is, to be clear about it. Why? Because if I'm rejoicing when the wicked fall, I'm not caring about the wicked. But if I'm rebuking someone in their sin, it's because I care. It's out of love. I've said this before. Is it loving to say to the whole entire homosexual community, hey, live however you want, it's no big deal. Is that love? When I know what the outcome of that decision will be for them? Or is it love to rebuke the sin? To call it as it is? To be honest about it? You know, Daniel is an amazing example of this. We already saw him and his boys when they first got dragged into Babylon. You know, Daniel actually had compassion for Nebuchadnezzar, his conqueror. It's an incredible scene. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has this bizarre dream of a tree. And I won't tell you the whole story, but long and short of it is the tree. This dream is a picture of Nebuchadnezzar losing his rule and losing his mind. And in this dream, and Daniel, Daniel sees the dream. Nebuchadnezzar describes it to him. Daniel sees it, he realizes it, and, and he shudders. And Nebuchadnezzar says, Daniel, tell me, it's all right. Tell me what's in the dream. Listen to Daniel's words. Daniel 4.19 My Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. 
What? Daniel, captured by, taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, has compassion for the man. Daniel says, this dream's bad news. And I wish it was happening to somebody else, but it's going to happen to you. And then he goes on to describe it. Great compassion. John the Baptist cared enough about wicked Herod to rebuke Herod's adulterous relationship. Herod took his brother's wife for his own. He's in adultery. John the Baptist speaks out against it, Matthew 14, and his head gets chopped off for it. But John the Baptist did it not because he was trying to shame Herod, but because he cared. Because what was going on was wrong in the sight of God, and he would better he was better to rebuke it than just to pretend like it wasn't going on. Our challenge is, is that right there, gang. It's to care enough not to rejoice when an enemy falls and to care enough to rebuke before an enemy falls. Verse 26. I like this one. He kisses the lips who gives a right answer. That's a good one. He kisses the lips who gives a right or literally an honest answer. That is, simple honesty is as pleasant as a kiss. And I was going to ask you, I guess I will ask, should we bring back the holy kiss? What do you think? (laughs) Paul said, greet one another with a holy kiss. Should we at the bridge start? (laughs) Shannon goes, I'll tell you what, if you don't want to bring back the holy kiss, then we better at least be honest with each other. Next one. Additional saying number three, verse 27. Prepare your work outside and make it ready for yourself in the field. Afterwards then, build your house. The idea, plan ahead. Get your ducks in a row. Jesus said in Luke 14, For which of you, when he builds a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to to finish. And here's the thing. A lot of Christians do start out measuring the cost of building. Thinking that, okay, if I've got the right materials, I'm going to lay it all out here. God, I'll, I'll be with you in a moment. I'm going to lay out my life, make sure I've got what I need, because if I'm going to do this Christian thing, I want to make sure and do it right. You know, So think it through. Do I have the materials to build? Yeah, okay, yes, I'll become a believer in Jesus now that my life's together. And you know what happens with that mentality? When things start to go wrong, we fall apart. When my life is in shambles, when my ducks run afoul. (laughs) (laughs) Disappointment sets in. Because suddenly I realize I can't do it. I can't be the Christian that I wanted to be when I first gave my life to Jesus. I can't do it. And that's the point. You can't. To count the cost of discipleship means that you recognize you are bankrupt. And then you say, so Lord, build my house. You build the house. Jesus said, Matthew 16, 18, upon this rock... I will build my church. What was the rock? Peter's faith? No, I would suggest to you the rock is the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because what Peter had just said is, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, upon that rock, I'm going to build my church. The rock of Christ. The lordship of Jesus. I will build my church. The blueprints I need begin with the foundation of Christ. 
and the establishment of Jesus. His building materials by His wisdom. Verse 28, we're almost done. Do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause. And do not deceive with your lips. It's wise advice. Verse 29, do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Uh There is only one who can render to a man according to his work. Because his work was perfect, and that is Jesus. Tell you what, let's all stand up together. Just stand. Keep your Bibles in your hands, and let's just read this last one. We come to the final additional saying. Now this is significant because with this one last saying and one last kind of a proverbial example, Solomon concludes his first edition of the book of Proverbs. Okay, It ended here. At the end of chapter 24, when Solomon closed the book, put away the pen, rolled up the scroll, this was it. This was the book of Proverbs, first edition, as Solomon wrote it. As we'll find out next week, beginning in chapter 25... And you can even note it there, the Proverbs of of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. 200 years later, as we've been talking about, 200 years later, the scribes of Hezekiah discovered a bunch more uh, Proverbs of Solomon and added them to the book. Okay, So this is how Solomon chose to end Proverbs. Watch this. Listen to it. Verse 30. I passed by the field of the sluggard. And by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. That's the last thing. And with that, Solomon concluded the book of Proverbs. You read that, and the question is why? Why does he end there? Why does he take that example of the sluggard, the lazy man whose field is a shambles, a mess, and why does he end there? The bottom line is this. It's because wisdom doesn't come to you. You have to go get it. Wisdom doesn't just arrive. You know, it doesn't just happen. You don't just somehow one day suddenly become full of wisdom. You have to pursue it. You have to work for it. The lazy man will not gain wisdom. Only he, only she who goes after it, who wants it, they're the ones who become wise. That's why Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.14, Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. And remember, Jesus said, Whoever hears these words of mine and acts on them, clears the field, plows the field, plants, harvests, whoever hears my words and acts on them will be like a wise man. And so concludes the book of Proverbs. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You tonight for giving it to us and leading us through these sayings of the wise. 
Lord, we covered a lot of ground. We plowed a lot of field tonight. I pray, Lord, that the seeds would take root in our hearts now. That understanding will flourish. And Father, that even as we have taken in knowledge, that You will grow it to wisdom in us. Lord, we stand on the foundation of Christ. You build the house. Build us up now with Your Word and Your wisdom. May we follow You. In Jesus' name, Amen.